And you know what? I always look at, uh, at, at my code and think, you know, the, the tales that this code could tell, if only it could tell what happened uh, back when it was, uh, uh, you know, used or abused. Welcome. It's time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast where we help you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and organization for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm Jessica Kerr, Jessatron, and today I am excited to talk to Ronnie Dover, who has opinions on what's missing in every DevOps loop. But first, a word from our sponsors. Rootly helps engineers manage incidents directly from Slack without ever needing to leave the tool. They handle all the boring and tedious manual work during incidents, like creating channels, looping in the right people, and acting as your scribe to document that ever-important timeline. Companies from 20 to 2,000 manage hundreds of incidents daily on Rootly. It's super simple and easy to use. You can install it in five minutes or less. Visit rootly.io to learn more and mention Arrested DevOps for $1,000 off when you book a demo. Do you ever start a query going in your log aggregator, go get a cup of coffee while you wait, and by the time you get back, it's not the answer you needed and you've started to forget what you were looking for to begin with? You don't have time to waste like that when you've got issues that need fixing now. Whether you need to understand your entire overall system or drill down to the individual user level with traces, get the right answers fast when you need them with Honeycomb. Go to honeycomb.io slash arrested DevOps to use it for free. Ronnie, tell us about yourself. <laughs> Great to be here. Yeah, so um, I'm a developer of many years. Um, I'm a bit of a board game geek, which is kind of the one geeky practice I managed to keep in the, in all of the busy, impossible to balance life work uh, uh, balance of uh, software industry. Um, I'm also a skeptic, um, and we'll get to that a bit later in terms of uh, how I view uh, processes um, and development in general. Um, and I think the one tragedy of my career is that I'm pretty much the man in, in, in the middle between the development and product management. I kind of always oscillate between the two. I never quite find a balance. When I'm doing something technical, I'm always kind of pulled toward kind of the reasoning and the use case and, and, and the product kind of uh, level considerations and, and vice versa. I can never stay away from the code. That sounds like a useful pendulum. Yeah, definitely. But I've, I've managed to find uh, the right balance and a lot of made up jobs that kind of allowed me to, to balance the two. In your swings between development and product, what have you noticed about DevOps and the DevOps loop? Yeah, so when, when you look at things holistically, you start kind of noticing things about the system and, and how it works. Um, and this also has to do with my own kind of fascination, let's call it, with how do you scale processes? How do you create mm. um, development processes that work? Um, I, I put a lot of thought and research into system thinking and, and all sorts of things that smarter people than me wrote about the topic to try to understand more. And what I noticed was that as a whole, development processes seem to be optimized or try to optimize as much as possible for speed. Do we mean speed of the software? No, no, speed of deployment, cadence, and kind of 
how fast do you deploy? How many releases do you do a day? How many, like um, when I was kind of uh, um, picking up on, on, on various practices, it was always kind of what's your time to release? Uh, um, you know, the, there is the whole kind of agile cliche of if you had to stop coding now, what what would be kind of the, the lead time that you still need to kind of uh, continue working until you have something stable that you can release and, and ship? Optimizing for for shipping shipping uh, often is is great, but uh, yes, the the only thing is if you only optimize for speed or for releasing often, what I found is that you're just creating a system where you're hurling features over the fence faster. <laughs> so instead of kind of uh, sending a feature over the fence and forgetting about it once a, a month, you do it 24 times a day. But it doesn't improve uh, the quality of the learning processes and of the feedback that you get so that ultimately you ha- end up with two processes. One process, which is engineering, which is completely bent on you know sending as many releases um, down the pipeline as possible. But then not kind of looking over the fence into, okay, what's going on with, with those features that they just sent there? What's happening with them? Well, now, wait a minute. I mean, the point of DevOps is that we don't forget about our code after it gets to production. We continue to make sure that it runs. Yes, that, that, that's true. But the, the, the thing is that most of those processes or tools that make sure that it runs... Um, just looking for problems. So if there is a problem, we'll know about it. We might fix the problem. But that's kind of a very reactive way to look at the problem. Well, and even then, it's only if it's a problem with the software running. Like, exactly. Is it, is it not responding at all? Or is it sometimes, is it getting really slow? But that's kind of like the, the so generic. That doesn't have anything to do with the particular features that we just threw over the fence. Exactly, and like uh, you, you mentioned the, the oscillations between product and and uh, development. As a product manager, uh, the tools of my trade were tools like Google Analytics and you know other commercial products that provide those kinds of insight. I can't imagine only getting notification when users stopped using these uh, this feature then i would know to to change my product uh, backlog or whatnot i i need continuously to, to, to look continuously at the data and make these decisions it's not kind of a one and done thing so where is the google analytics equivalent for developers right right i would call that observability exactly right right but it's you need more than just is it running? So it has to be more than monitoring. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a product manager, what kind of things are you learning from looking at Google Analytics continuously? Yeah, so all sorts of things. And this is also something that that um, is kind of becoming, I think, more um, prevalent and, and maybe a bit more codified in, in the types of insights people are looking for than it used to. But um, for product managers, they have conversion rates, they have things that they're testing. It's all, it's a lot of experiments. And by the way, this is where my skeptic side really fits in because you're you're continually conducting experiments, but you're continually monitoring what you're seeing from these experiences. Can you give me a concrete example? 
Sure. So I made a change to uh, the the web page, and now I want to see whether it causes more people to. Sorry for taking a very trivial example, to to um, to add items to the cart than before, right? Because I did a navigation change. I decided to show a pop up earlier. It can be basically any product decision, and now I want to manage what is the impact of that decision. Impact, uh, yes, yes. Whereas with traditional monitoring, we're only looking at, did I break it? We're not looking at, uh, did it change how people interact with the system? Exactly, exactly. Um, So what I noticed was that product managers, and as a product manager, I had a, a lot of tools available to me that provided me those types of feedbacks. And I would, I did not feel like I was running blind. I had a lot of information and probes that that provided me with the data that I need. Whereas with development, because the the whole focus was on shipping faster, the tools that I use were intended just for that, CI tools, CD tools, testing tools to make sure that I'm not breaking anything. But I had less tools. changing code that generically Uh continues to run. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And I had less tools that told me, you know what, Uh, this is the the impact of what you did, or this is how uh, performance is changing, or what you did works, or it's not enough. I need to know, does it work well? Does it work within the requirements that I can't replicate in my local environment? Because it is production. So in, in, in other words, whereas there is a lot of flow of information back on the product level, there is not enough flow of information back on the technical level. And this is the continuous feedback you're talking about? So continuous feedback is kind of like the inverse of uh, continuous deployment or continuous integration, continuous Ooh. deployment. So if you envision, envision kind of the DevOps loop with... It's different stages, and, and it's a completely bad analogy, by the way, and I'll talk more about that It's because it seldom is a linear process, but we'll get to that. But let's, for a second, forget about that and imagine DevOps, the DevOps loop is a very linear thing, one stage le- leading into another. Then okay, what are the you, stages? Then you have you know, the, all of these stages taking code from source to prod, if it's continuous integration, and then continuous deployment, and then eventually whatever you choose to fill those stages with, if it's performance, this integration test, backwards compatibility test, whatever user acceptance, whatever testing you're doing and processes that you're running, you eventually get your code into production. And that pipeline is all about that. Now, continuous feedback is kind of the inverse pipeline. It begins with information received from production. It goes through various stages to try to understand things that are relevant to me. And then the end is back into where I'm developing. If it's the source, if it is the um, uh, source control management tools that I'm using, wherever um, I'm I'm still developing code and need that information. Okay. So we currently call our DevOps pipeline uh, the trip from IDE to production. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about a continuous feedback pipeline Exactly. That takes information from production and puts it into our IDE? Exactly, exactly. And not okay. just the IDE, basically whatever tools I'm using uh, to work. Now, I talked about why this is really important for the on the macro level for the organization, but it's also really important for the individual developer because for me as a developer, 
um, there is such a thing as ownership over what I'm doing, mm. right? But we're told to have that. Exactly. But we've seen also ownership or the bounds of code ownership gradually increase. So when I got started developing many, many years ago, and I kind of feel old just saying that, but yeah, it was <laughs> too many years ago when I had my first job as a developer. And um, the boundaries of my ownership were that I was done developing the feature and I sent it off to QI because they were the next uh, phase in the pipeline. And that's that. And I forgot about that feature until I got some bugs back. But, but as code owners, we got, to, we got to yell at other people who changed the code we wrote. Yes. <laughs> that, was, that, that, was, that was code ownership when I started. It was a possessiveness of don't exactly. change my code. It means something different now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And uh, there are many funny stories about that. Um, but, but yes, when, when, when I got started, that, that was what it meant. And over the years, very, in a very healthy manner, it, became to be, it came to be more than just about that. So now we didn't own just coding, you owned testing and creating integration tests or, or automated tests for your code. You owned deploying the code uh, more and more. This is what's sometimes referred to as shifting right. Developers are basically owning more of the pipeline. They're basically more accountable, but it's a part of the ownership. Yeah, and it's, it's become more like... Um... First, it went through more like owning a car where you have to do like maintenance and get it repaired and change the oil or else the engine will seize up. Seize up. Uh, but now it's it, code ownership is more like parenting mm-hmm. where, where, where you try to help it do well in all situations. Exactly. And like a parent, you kind of want to know how your kids did in kindergarten when you sent them over there, right? So you, you want to have that observability back to understand how the kid is doing in w- whatever uh, kind of other uh, um, place you send them to. And this is exactly where, where, where that is relevant. So, okay. Okay. So if continuous feedback is like getting a report card home, uh-huh. Except way more frequent. It's more like that that weekly email from the kindergarten teacher, which was at least weekly. Um, what's in it? What what do we hear about from our code? There is there is a, something that I described here that isn't accurate. So it's true that you it's it sounds and I mentioned that before. It sounds very kind of linear. You code. You send the code over, kind of push it over the cliff. Uh, it then gets interacted with by users and other processes and other microservices. And you know what? I always look at uh, at, at my code and think, you know, the, the tales that this code could tell, if only it could tell what happened uh, back when it was, uh, uh, you know, used or abused in, in production by other processes and so on. Um, but it's not a linear process, meaning there is feedback all the time. Even before I start coding, there is already a lot of important information about how that code behaves. So, okay, give me examples. Give me examples. Yeah, so uh, if I'm, I want to use this code, the first and most trivial question is, what should I optimize for? Is this code that I'm looking at right now, is it used in a high concurrency uh, environment, is this kind of a bottleneck and every millisecond that I add here will propagate back through other services that are using it? Or is this kind or, of something or trivial? Or extreme. Does uh-huh. this code even run in production? 
Yes, yes. And, and I've seen a lot of surprised faces when we kind of <laughs> looked into that and people were investing a whole lot in the feature and then, uh, and, you know, di discovered that the, the if statement never reached that location that they invested so much in in the past three years. So wow. maybe it's time to, to get that information back to the product manager as well, but also to kind of know what I need to optimize for. And, you know, we have very limited time and resources as developers. Um, and we have, we need to know what to look at and which things should we kind of put an emphasis on and spend hours honing and making sure they run in an ideal way uh, and which are not so. And uh, a, a continual kind of, uh, uh, when, when I talked to developers and, and, and platform engineers, a lot of the things that they mentioned was, it's very uh, hard for us to know what to optimize for. And oftentimes we get, we're code reviewing or we're looking at code and we see that they completely missed it. They either micro optimized for one thing, uh, which wasn't necessary or completely forgot another. Another thing to look at is how does this code scale? So sure, if it doesn't scale well, eventually it will cause a problem, but why wait until then? Uh, if you can detect that this code um, performance has an increase based on concurrency or based on the size of the database or in correlation to the, the payload. These are things oh, oh. That, that provide you with information on the scale factor. So that's kind of another example of, of something that could tell you right now uh, about this code that you're looking at and whether it's something that, you know, the just as the code is continually updating, usage is continually updating. And some feature that was popular once may not be now and, and vice versa. So you might find that you need to continually make adjustments based on that feedback. Okay. So so our continuous feedback pipeline, which starts running before we ever drop a change into production, is just mm -hmm. running based on what's already happening in production. Mm -hmm. It can tell us how important is this code. Mm -hmm. And another thing is it can say this code has problems scaling under X condition. Yeah, it, 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 can, it can point out the things that are important for me as an engineer to know about it. It can tell me about errors uh, so that I can plan for runtime errors that do. Oh, appear. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, me, I want this yeah. about that that comment in my code that says can't get here. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> That throw exception, this should never happen. Does it? Uh -huh. Does it? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and and I think it's 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 kind of related to how we're sometimes misusing logging to accomplish just that because you know Ooh. that. As you uh, know, do we ever grab the log for this? Should exactly, never and and I've I've seen so many code bases where it was kind of like logger worn here or. Um, <laughs> Um, this is a, like you said, it should never be reached or whatnot. And I may monitor that log for a few days, but I, I will ultimately forget about it. Okay. So, so logging is the, the feedback we're used to. We're used to being able to mm -hmm. leave clues for ourselves in logs, see them immediately during development. And then, you know, hypothetically have the, the possibility of looking at them in production, but never really doing it. Exactly. Exactly. Or very rarely. Exactly. Um, so this is uh, basically what continuous feedback is. And 
it's it's really helpful for the organization because it it creates a learning process rather than a process that's optimized to ship out code and it also helps developers do their work because if they're accountable for the code that means that ultimately it's their problem if issues do occur so instead of waiting for them to occur let's kind of stretch the definition of done of what it means to to complete a feature let's not concentrate on deploying to production but but look over the cliff and kind of continually get feedback about how that code is doing and now what happens if you don't do that you're basically accumulating technical debt and eventually when things do come to kind of a boil and and, and issues do surface then you'll start handling them and and move from developing to troubleshooting, which is much harder. And there is more at stake. Everybody is more uptight about it because there is an issue. Production is already suffering from from some malfunctions that are causing misery to developers, to, to the users. And eventually that's not how you want to kind of... Uh, operate the, the the whole process because that's that just creates yeah. a lot of yeah it creates a lot of inefficiencies it it creates context switching because you're no longer handling oh. things at your own time you're now running around you know putting out fires you're a member of the right. engineering uh, fire brigade and 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 that that that's never healthy now the other thing that it helps you with is and this is kind of where my skepticism fits into the picture. Um, when you look at the development process, there are so many biases and kind of cognitive biases that are affecting us. And people wrote a lot about how it affects estimations. And you know, you know the, oh, like the listeners may make, yeah, the, the no estimates movement and where, how do we estimate and... But, you know, once you start seeing these things, it's it's kind of like it's, it's very hard to unsee them again because you see biases everywhere. You can see them in. Um, Do you in, have some examples? Yeah, sure. So estimations are, 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 are the classical ones because, you know, somebody says a figure, let's say three weeks. Now everybody adheres to that uh, figure. It's kind of a framing or a, um, a, a bias. Suddenly that, you're incompetent exactly. and you can't do it in three weeks. Exactly. And, and in, in developers, including myself, by the way, suffer from optimism bias. We're very optimistic about our ability to do things. We can't predict which thing will go wrong. So we exactly. predict that nothing will go wrong. Exactly. And when we give the estimate... <laughs> but we that's, know that's better. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then for testing, there is confirmation bias. So um, mm. tests are great. But tests often just codify our expectations. So we're saying we oh, expect this yes. to happen, so we create a test, but we don't see anything around what we've created that we did not think about or did we, we did yeah. not expect to happen. And it goes, it goes beyond edge cases. It's combinations of features, combinations of data coming in, um, ordering of clicks, there's it goes a mu- yeah, it goes there. much beyond edge cases because it's, you know, reality is a collection of, of things that not all of them is on the happy path that, that you coded a feature for. Most of them aren't. Yeah. Not all of them even make sense, but they still happen and they matter. Exactly. And what I've seen is that 
Well, one way to offset that is that observability does provide, it has its own, it's not a magical solution. It has its own biases and what you measure and so on. But eventually it does inject into the process a lot of relatively objective data. So I can interpret it in many ways and so on. But eventually observability does look at the raw data that we get from production. And it tells me the bottom line. And that's sometimes helped deal with these biases because, believe it or not, um, studies show that if you know about a bias, it seldom helps you actually overcome it. <laughs> so you're, you're still, you're still, uh, uh, you, you still, still have, have it. it. Yeah, exactly. yeah. You, if you know about it, you can choose to compensate for it. For instance, by mm-hmm. looking at your observability data, which should show you more broadly what's actually happening in the system without mm-hmm. you having to grab the logs for anything in particular. Yeah, so let me give you some examples. Let's say I I, re- I refactored my DAL, my data access layer, and made some changes, and I expect things to be, to be so much smoother now. And it, my testing showed it's working brilliantly, and I pushed it over production. But does it? And will I actually look at the data? Do you even have access to that index in production? Exactly. Yeah. What do I measure? How 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 do I actually uh, uh, check this? I changed the threading strategy and went from thread driven to process driven with something, and and everybody is hyped oh, about can. this being the right solution. You can predict the consequences of that. Exactly. So right. so okay, this so- is where it it really helps to to have some objective data. And the way I look at it is, it allows you to write code in a more informed way. So it's basically being much more informed when you code and when you look at the impact of your code changes. And this completely changes the way people can develop. All right. So we've talked about uh, observability, which gives you the option to go look at graphs and traces and see whether uh, the consequences of your code are roughly what you expected. Um, but, but you have to like go and look mm-hmm. at it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it, it's it's not quite grabbing logs. It's prettier than that, but it's still uh, an activity that takes you away. And then you have that context switch, and that's annoying. Yes, you're absolutely right. And the one thing that I can say is that this is exactly why, as much as I'm just now extolling the benefits of continuous feedback, it doesn't happen. And mm. it I have seldom, very seldom, um talked to an or engineering organization where they're practicing continuous feedback. They're, they're actually employing these principles. And the reason is just what you said, is engineers are very busy people. They don't have the capacity to start looking for trouble in uh, logs or in dashboards all the time. Yeah, we got product way. people for that. Exactly. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, the other aspect is that engineers... Um, not all of them have the expertise. Like even myself, you know, I, I managed to forget 90% of what I knew about statistics. So if you tell me to analyze As the performance... Should, to make room a, for other stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's what I tell myself. But no, but but basically when I look at the code today, I it's hard for me to analyze uh, percentiles and performance metrics and measure things in a correct way because what I have available to me is a lot of data not insights, not this is the bottom line about this function, but data and actually... Not how important is this code? 
Exactly. Like an insight would be, this is a bottleneck in your code, and this is the reason why. And then I can double click to to learn more. But if I need or to this do this error actually happens all the time. Thanks. Exactly, or escalating, or whatnot. But if I actually need to do those aggregations and and percentiles myself, then it might take me too much time, and I probably won't do it, or I won't. We'll do it one time as a science uh, exercise, and then I'll 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 forget about it. Right. Yeah, that's a research project. Exactly. Exactly. And the last thing is like is what you said is that it's context switching and and I'm working right now I'm not going to you know there are enough tools and that I'm using as is that are causing me to context switch I can't context switch to another and this is actually okay. exactly the reason why you know I've I've been working on some projects and uh, that try to make that uh, more accessible for developers. What's your vision? So. About uh, and all, all of the, these things that I'm telling you about are um, I'm, I'm very kind of uh, passionate about them because I've been kind of uh, uh, processing all of that uh, information and kind of doing a lot of research into that. Um, and this led me to start uh, Digma, which is uh, an open source uh, project that tries to deal with these three reasons for why we're not using observability in our day to day. So what is it does it, it 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 is the expert. So it contains a lot of the kind of things that are today tribal knowledge about how do I measure latency, how do I look at the time series and see uh, if it's escalating or not. How do I measure? Are these the insights? Exactly. So to be able to bring me as a developer something I can work with instead of look at these percentiles and uh, look at these. Uh, raw metrics and and do something with them, which is very hard for me as a developer, nor do I have the time to do that. Second, to bring it into the IDE so that I don't need to actually context switch. I can, as I work, see these things about my code, react to them, and uh, make the code better when needed, and also understand how it works better in production. And the last thing is it allows me to do it in a very proactive way. So I don't need to wait for an issue. I'm, I'm going to own my code when I push it over the cliff into production. I, I will get life signs from it. It will tell me people started using me. And then it will tell me um, I'm scaling well or I'm scaling poorly or I've actually affected the system in, in this way. Uh, and it's not just about the negative, by the way. My, my other kind of problem with how organizations use observability is it's it's sometimes all about is all about the blame game like something went wrong who do i blame but there is enough there are enough victories to celebrate as well and things and things are being improved all the time let's let's kind of yeah. put that in the center as well so that it creates a positive culture that allows us to recognize people that you know saw an issue with the code, made it better, made the world a better place. And now we can all kind of see it as well. And that's the reason kind of for, or that's the motivation that got me really so obsessed about continuous feedback. And so um, to, to the extent that I decided to, to, to initiate this, uh, this project um, and we've, we've been working very hard on it and it's, it's just reaching the, the beta stages right now, which is really awesome. Ooh, 
And by the way, I'm inviting all of our viewers to, to log in to digma.ai and, and, and sign in for the beta. I will be happy to kind of, uh, if you mentioned that uh, you're from the podcast, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a little bump in the priority list for the beta. And, uh, <laughs> and we'll be very happy to kind of hear your thoughts because as people who write a tool for con- continuous feedback, we're really, uh, it's, feedback is really important for us. So getting uh, user feedback is really critical. All right. So you talked about installing a plugin in your IDE, mm-hmm. but I have mm-hmm. a feeling it can't be that simple. How does uh, Digma mm-hmm. or any continuous feedback pipeline mm-hmm. uh, get information about the code that's running in production? How does it correlate some metric or event mm-hmm. to a line of code? So that's a great question. And I think there has been a kind of a in my mind, a very pivotal um, technology was introduced in this regard, which is open telemetry. Now, open telemetry is, you know, other people can can talk about it technically much uh, better th- than myself. But the impact of open telemetry is that it's something that everybody suddenly agrees on. And that's mm. the thing that's most important to me. And what that means is that you can see all of the commercial vendors kind of aligning around open telemetry and pushing it for new projects. Um, and as a result of that, we start getting an ecosystem that can kind of take into account that there is a structured way of doing things. There is a spec that describes how metrics work, how tracing works, and so on. And this paves the way for new open source tools to start providing ways to make that data more useful. Kind of, I think that the, as much as I, I think that, I, I don't like the term for being a bit markety, but it's really democratizing the observability data. It's making it much mm. easier for any tool to use that data. It's no longer a proprietary format or agent or whatnot by that company or that company. It's something that's very easy to write uh processes that make more understandable and easier for developers to grow and to use in their day-to-day. And my prediction is that we're going to see a lot more tools that are able to do that. So the way that we've implemented that is simply use open telemetry. We receive the information just like any other kind of uh, observability uh, tool or APM tool that you're using. Um, we're ingesting the data in a very similar way, only we're a pipeline. We're not uh, an, uh, an APM. So Digma's ability is to create that inverse pipeline, get that data, start processing it through various stages, and then provide the feedback back. But that's just one example. I'm anticipating we're going to have to see a lot of tools because Open telemetry kind of opened the way um, for for this to happen. So, open telemetry uh, it gives you a standard format mm-hmm. of telemetry data of events that the code sends out. Yeah. Uh, it and and then it gives um, a bunch of libraries that mm-hmm. add standard implementations. Oh, um, the libraries are awesome because they they're they're kind of automatically instrumenting a lot of your code, even if you don't have a code base that was written in a way that's very, let's say, trace aware, and it might be using logs or some other uh, forms of observability, but not 
traces and metrics or other things. So the automatic instrumentation that OpenTelemetry provides actually makes it very easy to, to adopt it and makes it more kind of like a just flip on the light switch kind of an mm. experience because all you need to do is to include these libraries, add a piece of code that activates them, and that's it. You're, you're live. You're broadcasting that information. And that's awesome because that means that the time from a, a product that has no telemetry whatsoever to having something that is providing a lot of useful data is very short. And the reason for that, again, is because all of these different programming languages and platforms didn't need to conform to 20 different standards. They all just needed to provide an integration with Oto. And you can see that, by the way, with some programming languages actually kind of make it a part of the standard library in, in, in a sense, just because nice. it's, it's, it's become so prevalent and, 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 and so much of a consensus. And I think we'll, we'll, we'll really start seeing uh, a lot of benefits from that. Does, does Digma depend on the automatic instrumentation, like the, the particulars of their implementations to associate uh, events, telemetry events with a location in the code? So Digma employs a couple of ways uh, to do that, uh, both by scanning the code and, and understanding kind of uh, th those correlations and using open telemetry information that's included in, 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 in the tracing data itself. Um, but the way we try to build it is kind of like a, um, babushka or matrushka as, as it's sometimes called which is you know those dolls that are the, the one Russian dolls of, with yeah them. exactly like a russian doll so basically even if you don't do anything we provide really useful information and the more information you bring the more we can provide more data for example you can add and it's very easy to add uh, via an environment variable in your ci the commit id so if you add a commit id to the measurements that were added by observability, then we can triangulate that and start offering insights that also take into account maybe which code change kind of precipitated this, this event. Um, if you add um, um, additional information about, let's say, the, the, the correlation between a specific uh, uh, point in the code and, and, and the, a specific span, then we can use that as well. So the idea is to make it very um, uh, to make sure that it provides value just if you turn it on. But then kind of, and this is something we're really hoping developers will start doing in general, unrelated to Digma. When, when you start working with code today, it's such a long loop between, let's say, adding a trace into your code, then deploying that code. Then sometimes it will get called maybe in production, Maybe you'll forget that you added that trace by then and then seeing the result. But if you have a shorter loop, if you add that trace and then you immediately start getting feedback from testing, you immediately start getting feedback from the CI, then staging maybe, then, then production in the feature branch or whatnot, you'll create a shorter iteration loop that will make it much uh, easier and, and will provide more motivation for developers to run these experiments and add these traces to be able to measure things accurately and write code in a more informed way. So if you practice observability during development, mm -hmm. then uh, you get feedback in multiple ways. I mean, if so if Digma 
the pipeline is mm-hmm. one out one telemetry backend mm-hmm. uh, for open telemetry and um, you can send it to another one mm-hmm. um, then you can get both your observability tool uh, to show you what's happening in your local environment in test etc cetera, etc cetera. and you can feed into the is it slower insights for example yeah ooh, think, ooh, ooh. yeah a, a friend asked me uh, yesterday um, <laughs> yeah about they have a Rails app, and she said um, she wants she sees the traces uh, can show you where you have an n plus one query, but uh-huh. she doesn't want to share traces. She just wants something to tell her, "Hey, you have exactly. an n plus one query right here." She just described Digma, right? Because this, nice. this is <laughs> this is exactly the the point, right? We don't have the time to go through the traces and identify. N plus one queries and N plus one query is something that's that's a classical case because it's very easy to spot or to at least get a suspicion that this is happening. Yeah, yeah, and and it happens in Hibernate and it happens in Active Record and it happens exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, that's very useful because uh, the classic observability uh, use case is there's a production incident, but mm-hmm. that's only the negatives. Mm-hmm. It's only when things are bad. And honestly, it's not every day, you know, as a developer um, who's only on call occasionally. And th- that's that's not my life. That's not motivating to add more attributes to my spans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and also, I, I don't like to be surprised all the time. Like, as, as a developer, I like to be in control. And I like to have that sense that, you know, I I finished my workday, I checked in code. I don't want to be in kind of stressed about, wait, I pushed this code, it will be in production. What if something goes wrong? And then three days later, somebody calls me up at 2 a.m. to tell me something happened. That's not a good way to kind of handle the process. If, on the other hand, I'll, I can keep in touch with, with this code that I've just uh, rolled in, I won't be surprised if I see something beginning is start, something bad is starting to happen. I'll be the one to know about that. I don't need any of um, APM tool to tell me when things are already horrible. I'll, I'll start detecting that this code is behaving a bit differently than I expected. And this is where I'll want to maybe make modifications, but do it on my own time and not when things are already on fire. Nice. So instead of chucking it over the fence, mm-hmm. you've released it into the field, but you continue to check on it and care for it. Exactly. And more than that, and I, I actually r- wrote a blog post about it a while back called Breaking the Force Wall was, was, was the code. It actually needs to call to talk back. It needs to tell me. I don't need to check oh. on it. It needs to, to tell me, hey, look, like, I, know I, I'm, okay. yeah. <laughs> I know I'm this code and I'm doing this thing where I'm, I'm servicing people, but I also wanted to let you know how I'm doing. Um, and these are the <laughs> so things that, that, that I'm saying. Home. Exactly. So obviously, this is oversimplifying it. And, and we do need to, to manage. And this is kind of the number one, let's say, risk in continuous feedback is making sure that it's the right feedback. And it's not overwhelming me with feedback that's less relevant, that if, if that it's very kind of, it, it's built in a double click into more information rather than kind of overwhelming with a lot of raw data and results. And that it's mm. it's very 
um, accurate and and making sure that w- when it does say something is important, it doesn't lead me on a wild goose chase chase that will take me like uh, a day of of exploring around to find out that it's not really important. So so it's not it, spammy. Exactly. All of that I think is is the main. You know, there there everything has its its kind of checks and balances and. And continuous feedback has that. Uh, you, if you do use continuous feedback, you need to make sure that um, the tool doesn't spam you with all of these different notifications. It has to be something that's pertinent, that's, that's real, and that is actually indicative of something that's happening in real life. The good thing is that we're becoming much better at measuring these things. And, and I think it's also kind of a, a great way for organizations that don't necessarily have that expertise straight away. Um, for example, I've, I've, for the last several months, I've been talking to so many different organizations and they're all struggling with observability. Let's put it like that. And I don't think it's a big kind of news to anybody that, that observability can be hard to implement. Mm-hmm. And what, and it's, it's part of it is because it's still a young field, like open telemetry is, young. Uh, you know, we've been doing profiling for a while, but it hasn't become kind of a tribal knowledge that everybody shares. It hasn't become kind of uh, something that... Lots of people don't know what a trace is and haven't exactly. worked with a trace. In fact, probably most developers at this point have not worked with tracing. Exactly. And, and, and that's just a basic level, but to analyze those traces and what to look for, what to measure, how to measure, these are things that are very hard for people to figure out. And they've been asking me a lot of these questions. So if you get the best people in the industry to already kind of start, and this is where, the, by the way, the open source aspects fit, fits in because we want anybody to be able to contribute additional things. But if you get the smart people, the experts, to kind of codify these things into the platform and make sure that... And then if you get the rest of us to write the text to make it make sense. Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 and the thing is you, you, you can create a platform that, that actually provides information that's very bottom line for me as a developer. No, I don't want to know about, you know, linear regressions or whichever way you came by that data, but I do want to know the bottom line. I want to know that there is an issue here and see some examples of that. And that's it. That This is what I need to know as a developer. And what that does is it removes this bottleneck for the middleman expert in every organization. You know, he's the go-to guy for performance. Mm-hmm. We don't need to bother them for all of those things all the time, he can actually maybe add his own insights that he wants to keep track of. And instead, we all benefit from that information. We can start being more informed about all of these things. And and I, I, I see it like, I think my experience has been once I, I started getting more feedback about my code is that without that overlay, I'm kind of Blind. I'm coding blind. I, I, I'm guessing a lot of things. A lot of it is biases. I think this is great code. I wrote it. Uh, this is the new thing that we wrote. It must be awesome. It's based on the best design patterns. You're coding to the test instead of mm-hmm. coding to the customer. Exactly. I'm coding to the test instead of testing the code in, in, in again, <laughs> in, in a real life uh, manner. Got to test in prod. It's, it's, it's the only real test. I mean, also test before prod, but don't forget. To test in real life, exactly. Yeah. So, Great. so we're very, very excited about it. Uh, we're um, getting a lot of information back from from uh, developers, and and by the way, um, I would be very 
um, I'd be very happy to hear you know the the listener thoughts about what are the things that would make sense to them what are the things that without which they wouldn't be able to uh, to to be certain about their code changes or the things that they want to see about their code behaviors because we're every person I talk to is just a lot of different use cases and perspectives that are really gold at this point. Great, great. So where can people get a hold of you? So I'm at Twitter at at Doppelware. We can get the the link I think in, in the show notes probably. Can you spell uh, it for us? D O P P L E W A R E. Doppelware. Yeah. Great. Um, you can also go to digma.ai, which is our website where you can kind of sign on uh, if, if you want to, to try it out. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very, and, and I also have a blog where I write kind of profusely about these topics, which is uh, on Medium, and I, I'll send a link to that uh, as well. We'll get that in the show notes. Exactly. One final question before we mm-hmm. wrap up. At the moment... Yeah. What's your favorite board game to play? Oh, man. <laughs> I'll get into trouble no matter what I say. Uh, but no, I, I, I actually, I have to confess that uh, the way that I play board games is is kind of peculiar. For, for once, I never play or I seldom play the same game twice. So I just have this. It's a learning game then. <laughs> no, and I'll tell you why. It's just kind, kind of when you play a game too much, it becomes more of a rule hacking and kind of you already know the mechanics and you're just playing the rules and and kind of gaming it so that you you can win or lose and i like that kind of exploration phase where nobody really knows what they're doing but everybody's got kind of trying to create a good story in the game which is kind of my my favorite thing but having said that i i love uh, new angeles uh, if anybody's familiar with it, it's a, it's a great uh, combination of a social game with a kind of a, you're basically running this uh, futuristic town with a lot of trying to balance between getting some money into your own pockets and making sure things don't completely uh, that the, the system that the, the town doesn't completely lose it. So it's 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 a really great game. <laughs> Thanks. So your favorite board game is anything you've never played before? Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> Uh, what did Perfect. I say the, the, the name of the game was? New Angeles? New Angeles, yes. Sorry, I thought I misspelled it. Great. Also, Perfect. look for that in the show notes. I'll be happy to look Bonnie, it's been great to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much for allowing me to talk on my favorite topic. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> it's, it's so much fun. Um, and I'll be, I'm, I'm, so, thanks so much, friend, for inviting me. It's, it's been a blast. Great. For our listeners, head over to arresteddevops.com slash continuous dash feedback for this episode's show notes. Also, visit arresteddevops.com slash iTunes and leave us a review if you want to help other people find this podcast. And we're probably on Spotify and iHeartRadio if you're into those. Barney, thank you for joining us today. And I'm Jessica Kerr at Jessatron. This has been Arrested DevOps. Remember, there's always DevOps. In the banana stand? Yes, in the banana stand! (laughs) (laughs) Yes.